Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Lucy, have you got a kind of back to school feeling? We're at the end of August now and we've really been enjoying these looks back at the podcast. But it's kind of time to pull up our socks and get our set squares ready, isn't it? Oh dear, yes. (laughs) It's always a bit of a sinking feeling, isn't it? You have to get your pencils ready and make sure you've got the right I was going to say right length of your skirt, but that's not something that we have to worry about so much anymore. Yes. And we did have homework. We had summer homework. Yeah, we had a summer project. We did. We, we set. We, we challenged. It wasn't even our idea. It was a brilliant listener's idea. And then we put it out to the listeners and they responded very well. And we've been quite quiet about it, I feel. Well, in my defence which I realise is I start so many sentences in my defence. <laughs> uh, in my defence, I've had to be reading an awful lot. I mean, I've been lucky enough to read an awful lot of new books. I've been doing a lot of reviewing over the summer. But I think I did I did mention, I have mentioned on the podcast, my obsessive listening to the entire Ruth Rendell back catalogue on audiobook. Yes. And I've continued that, don't worry. I've continued Are you trying that to as claim that that's buying a second-hand book? I am. Yeah, okay. I am actually. Um, okay, all right. Fight that's me in the courts, the Lucy. Fight me in the courts. But um, I hadn't realised how funny she is, and she seems to drop in these these kind of brilliant moments. The other day, in one of the books that I was listening to, a character was talking rather disparagingly, I think, about her mother-in-law, and she said she went to lay down and read what she called the latest Julie Myerson. Is that an extraordinary <laughs> thing to say? And I'm not sure whether maybe... What did everyone Ruth, else call it? I know, what did everyone else call it? I'm not sure whether maybe Ruth Rendell and Julie Myerson were great friends and this was a... So I, I have no idea. It was one of those little moments in the book where you think there's a whole story there. And mm, if I were good. doing a PhD, I would find out what it was. But, you know, maybe our, our wonderful listeners can enlighten us. What have you been doing? Well, I've nearly risen to the challenge. I read a book which mentions buying a lot of other secondhand books. That's a con, isn't it? Mm. But, the, but I'm mentioning it because the book was brilliant. It was Either Or by Elif Batchuman. You've probably read it. You've read everything. I actually uh, have. Sorry. Of course you have. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I have. But she uh, does talk in it about going to a secondhand book writer. shop. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Yeah. And she reads Either Or and Russian literature and she tells you all about it. And Proust, she's so funny about Proust. And you don't have to have read it. She gives you a brilliant 
precy of everything that she's got. It's such a good voice. It's probably rather an advantage if you haven't read it. I mean, these books, this series that she's embarked on, because this is about a college student, isn't it? And it's the second in a series. I think there's going to be another one that's yeah. taking through her through. And if you were to describe it and say, well, she's a bit, you know, she's she's not getting on very well with boys and she's thinking about an old boyfriend and she's talking about the books that she's reading. And oh yeah, and it's quite long. You might think, oh, that sounds a bit, not sure I could get to grips with that. It's absolutely, but it's so funny and so clever. It is. It so is clever so about books and what and how they become your companions throughout life, which of course is what this podcast is all about. It, it, it is. We, we like to think so. But the other thing is I did sort of do it. I outsourced its reprehensible behavior, isn't it? My son was taking some stuff to the charity shop and I said, buy me a book and then that will count. And then I will have got a secondhand book. And he said, what do you want? And I said, I don't know, surprise me. So he got me Chris Boardman's autobiography, which did <laughs> surprise me. It's called Triumphs and Turbulences. I have and, to say, um, Lucy, you were asking <laughs> to be given the autobiography of a cyclist there. If you cannot be bothered to trot down the road to the secondhand bookshop, for heaven's sake. You know what? I found it absolutely fascinating. He told us a bit all about the Tour de France that he was in. And then he talked about commentating on the Tour de France. And I learned a bit about that. He was in the same team as the as the legendary Greg LeMond, except mm. I think it sounds like Greg LeMond was a bit, not to put too fine a point on it, a bit knackered by the time Chris Boardman was in his team and wasn't at his best. Anyway, I learned about some stuff about the history of cycling and Chris Boardman. So I was very happy. Thank you. It's funny. I mean, that would have been a great gift for me but I assumed less so for you, but maybe this is the point. We have to, we read outside our comfort, comfort zone sometimes. But that's, that but the tour de, the point. Yeah, yeah. But also the Tour de France is my comfort zone in as much as I love it and don't know very much about it. So always happy to learn. What are we supposed to be talking about, Alex? Well, funnily enough, we're talking about self-improvement. Yes, we that's it. The, the wonderful Catherine Hughes on the podcast at the end, the very end of last year. And she is talking about ways of bettering ourselves. Have a listen. It often feels like you could spend your days reading self-improvement tomes. Indeed, it's a genre so chock-full, you'd barely have time to read anything else. Although there's probably a book telling you how to find more time to read. But there's more to self-help than at first meets the eye. At least that's the premise of The Art of Self-Improvement by cultural historian Anna Katharina Schaffner. Catherine Hughes has reviewed it for this week's paper. Hello, Catherine. Hello, Alex. What a fun thing to write about. Um, just tell us first, this is a book that goes way beyond the sort of who moved my cheese and how to get rich quick books, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, Schaffner makes this really important distinction between self-help books like who moved my cheese and self-improvement, which is something much more sort of, well, to use the word mindful, which is the buzzword at the moment, but something that's just much richer and much, and much deeper. And, and what she does very cleverly, I think, is make us see the difference between those two things. So self-help might be all about how to get ahead at the office, um, but self-improvement actually might just be about how to be a better colleague, friend, employee or boss. So it's it's much richer, it's much fuller and um, the, the rewards, I think, are, are kind of spread much further. They go right into society at large. So the kind of idea of, of self-help is sort of goal-orientated, I suppose. It's how to get something, basically. Self-improvement is, your is I suppose, another buzzword, is a kind of holistic approach to the self and to society. I think you can even go deeper with it. I mean, self-help uh, presupposes that you're quite happy with the way the world works and all its late capitalist rottenness. You're not trying to change any of that, the unfairness, the uh, the awful, blatant sort of misery of it all. You're just going to carve out a nicer path for yourself. Mm. Self-improvement, uh, she she thinks, is, is actually about, you know, you might decide that you actually want to change the world. But in order to do that, you've got to change yourself first. So there's, there's more of a promise of action if that's what you want to do. But I think she's very good. I mean, she's she's very good at making that point that you know, self-improvement can fall into a sort of uh, awful, cloying sort of self-esteem talk, which ends up as narcissism, where basically you become the subject and the object of everything in the world. 
at the other end, if you become very stoical, if it's all about, let me just put up with everything in the world, that can be also a very um, sort of determinist and deflating kind of position. So she wants us to, to, to make or, or to think about finding a way between those two poles so that we don't assume that, yet yeah, the world can be remade in our image, but nor do we think, heavens, it's all helpless. I better just go away and, and die in my hole. let's let's not think that shall we that is a route to just you know endless netflix and crying isn't it exactly yeah it's an interesting sort of journey to chart between them it's much deeper than you might originally think from from who moved my cheese i could never work out how working out who moved your cheese would help your life i think the point is actually lucy it it wouldn't it came in for an awful lot of flack in america um that great historian of ideas barbara erich neatly said you know who moved my cheese is simply uh, a sort of bible for people who are about to be made redundant it's sort of telling them how, how not to be too upset about it I mean it was it wasn't going to help you at all it was going to help uh the people who are in charge of the cheese mm. um but where I think this this is a serious important book I mean Anna Katerina Schaffner is a uh, professor of cultural history at Kent what she's very interested in doing is taking what might seem like slightly facile titles that we're, we're all aware of, like Awaken the Giant Within and even Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, these slightly slogany kind of books that we've heard of, even if we haven't read them. And she wants to trace them back to their origins, where they have a much sort of richer starting point, often in classic Stoic thought of the first century AD or back to uh, the Renaissance, back to Montaigne and the Renaissance. So her point is, they may seem a little bit um, glib, they've been packaged, but if you actually think about them, understand where they come from and perhaps trace them back to their origins, it starts to make a slightly richer, deeper sort of sense. Uh, I, I must say, when you when you said, even if we haven't read them, I am actually a person who has read quite a lot of them. I'm a real sucker for this sort of publishing. And I did wonder, and, and you you go into it, and I, I, I think probably Anna-Katerina Schaffner goes into it in much more depth, how they began to emerge in this kind of common incarnation. I mean, we know about, for example, Dale Carnegie and How to Win Friends and Influence People. That's right back in the 30s. But what was the point at which they became something that the modern reader began to buy in droves. I think it's a movement that walks hand in hand with uh, great improvements in the publishing industry. So from about 1850, where we get new ways of publishing, new ways of making paper, we've suddenly got a sort of mass readership of newly literate populations in Western Europe and America. That's when you start to see these books being pumped out. Interesting, 1859 is a really interesting year. Samuel Smiles in 1859 published Self-Help. And actually, that was the same year that Isabella Beeson came out with her book of household management. Both those books are absolutely designed for a mass readership. They're designed to both go far and wide, you get hold of them cheaply. Um, the idea is that now it's a sort of democratised kind of uh, experience, both reading about these uh, these things that you could do and then putting them into practice. So I would say that's when it really starts to seem like self-help has kind of saturated the culture. It's really interesting, though, how those books continue to get misread. I mean, I remember back in the day when uh, Sir Keith Joseph was the educational secretary uh, under Mrs. Thatcher. He was so enamoured of Samuel Helps, uh, Samuel Smiles' self-help that he wanted a copy distributed to every child in Britain, which kind of boggles your mind because in, in self-help, it's, it's all about get up at four o'clock, learn some Latin before you go for your factory shift. Um, If you happen to get a bit, I don't know, let's say you have to get lame, just get your leg amputated in the lunch hour, don't take any time off, and then you can hobble back to work and continue your way up the managerial tree. Now, how Keith Joseph thought this was going to help um, state school children in the 1980s, I have no idea. But it is interesting that it's an idea, just the word self-help, Victorian values still has a kind of odd creaky currency today. The getting up at four o'clock has kind of cycled back round, hasn't it? Because now we're all supposed to get up at four o'clock and not necessarily learn Latin, but 
go to the gym for two hours or whatever. That's 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 still a thing. I thought it, I think it's really interesting, Lucy, how during um, COVID, especially sort of the first lockdown a, a year ago, lots of people looked seem to kind of look upon that that time of enforced rest not as a, just a time to kind of chill out, but actually to put new behaviours in place. Uh, so exactly getting up early, doing lots of uh, gym work, making your own bread, being the person you always wanted to be. I think Samuel Smiles would be very, very um, approving of that. The trouble is it didn't really last. So we we went from making our own bread to uh, getting pissed in front of, front of Netflix <laughs> quite quickly. <laughs> But it's it's which is its own form of self help, of course. Yeah, Yeah, of course it is. (laughs) I would say there are some very educational documentaries on Netflix. Uh, Admittedly, they might not be what we're watching, but uh, (laughs) interestingly, you know that that mention of Keith Joseph there and Samuel Smiles, it it points to a kind of um, evasion of the state in some ways, doesn't it? That if we're all trying to improve ourselves and be self-reliant, we're not going to look to the state to do it for us. And I wondered how much a lot of these books address a kind of authority gap where we might have at once, one place look for guidance in our lives to, to religious organisations, to the government. And now we have kind of somehow, I don't know, taken in this idea that we've got to do it all ourselves. I think you're absolutely right. I think the reason Keith Joseph so likes Samuel Smiles is that really it's a doctrine of of small government. It's a doctrine where you are responsible for yourself. You must do everything. It's nobody's uh, job to help you or to encourage you to think in a certain way. I think that's absolutely right. I think it's no coincidence that these uh, these kinds of cheap books that I was talking about, self-help and the book of household management, become very popular just at the point where there's a sort of crisis in faith, where fewer and fewer people are going to church because they embody a kind of low evangelical Protestant kind of rigour and downness, and you must rely on your own conscience to tell you what is right and what is wrong. Interestingly, neither Smiles nor Beaton were church people at all, but that didn't stop them borrowing that kind of language that is is what the vicar used to tell you. Now there is no vicar. Uh, You've got to look to yourself. So I I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think this is where Schaffner is is rightly quite sceptical about a lot of these books. Um, She feels that they are, um, well, who moved my cheese? As I say, it's not about actually deciding whether we need cheese in the first place or whether everybody needs a bit more cheese. It's actually just about making sure that you get some and you don't get too upset if a big hand descends from the sky and and takes it away. Um, the problem is, of course, that if you go the other way, if you if you are believe yourself to be entirely formed and programmed by your particular set of Um, social circumstances or your embodied presence that leaves you very little wiggle room to do anything about it it then becomes a sort of quite defeatist if it's all a question of throwing up your hands and going well I can't change myself because um, there is no place for change I'm I am the way I am that also is is really quite um difficult and unpleasant and unpalatable I mean she makes a very good point if we really believed that then we would have the death penalty um back in Britain because if we didn't believe that people could improve themselves or do better or make something of themselves well we we just we just um judicially murder all uh, all people who are convicted of a capital offence and we don't do that mercifully that's because we do deep down believe that there is possibility of improvement and if not transcendence perhaps some sort of salvation it's very interesting that as you say there, there is this idea of the connection that our improving ourselves will have with the rest of the, with people around us, that the impact we can make on society. I mean, Schaffner, and I, I think you, as you're writing about her, do say that self-help can be a collective enterprise. It can feed in to our civic duties and our political duties. I think that's right. She's got a very, very good section, very, I think, persuasive about those books which have the word, and I'm going to say a rude word, fuck it somewhere in the title. So I don't know if you, coyly, they always use asterisks, but um, 
John Parkin wrote one in 2007, Fuck It, The Ultimate Spiritual Way. Then Sarah Knights had one, The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck. I have to admit, I did read that one. And then there was a more recent one, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And where she takes issue with these is um, that these books posit themselves as uh, a way of giving up and surrendering in a sort of Buddhist or Taoist way, in the sense of just giving up your inland empire and just going with the flow, and that that's a profoundly spiritual thing and will help everybody else around you. She makes a very good point. That is not what the Buddha was talking about. That is not what Taoism is about. Letting go in its original context isn't about just acting out your own stroppy desires. It's about letting go of worldly attachments and and the ego, so that you are more able really to serve the people around you. And I, I think that's a really, really interesting distinction she makes. The point about letting go should be that we have more energy um, and it becomes available to cure, to care and attend to others. Uh, and the way the fuck it books describe it, it just sounds like a load of teenagers kind of going up to their bedroom and locking the door. But it's a distinction, isn't it? It's not to say, uh, oh, I don't care about anything. Who cares? Mm. It's um, actually, I'm going to care less about the stuff that I particularly want and, and see what I can do outwards. It's a bit more that kind of thing. Is that Absolutely. right? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's about um, sort of calming the inner voice, uh, not just so you'll feel a bit better and mm. sleep right through the night, but because you'll just have, you'll have more attention and energy to give to the world and to other people. It's interesting, isn't it, the way that a lot of these things have spilled out into the culture generally. So we have, I mean, it's always something or other month, giving up something month, do you know, writing so so many words in a day, not drinking for January. There's this idea that this constant sort of work on the self uh, is kind of in every part of our lives, isn't it? Yes, uh, it, it absolutely is. And I, and I think that possibly comes back to that sort of mid 19th century feeling of, you know, your conscience is now your God. Uh, nobody's going to make you do anything. So it is up to you entirely to police yourself. And that's incredibly exhausting. I mean, that's just incredibly, um, well, just exhausting and impossible. And of course, we know, don't we? Because we keep on buying and reading these books. And I'm a great one for downloading apps that tell me about all these sorts of things. We know that in a sense it doesn't work. Otherwise we wouldn't be constantly renewing our engagement with all this material. So ah, in a way it's getting us all frothed up into a very sort of torturous inner state where again, we are entirely self-obsessed. I, I do want to, if we may, pause for a little while on the subject of Marie Kondo, who Shasna talks about, and so do you. And, um, you know, as, as with many of the kind of books that we've discussed, they are sort of ripe for, for mockery, uh, even if of a gentle kind. Um, but she makes the point that actually Kondo is doing something valuable with the kind of spark joy idea even if it has been sort of reduced into a slogan that's right uh, the, the great thing about this book which I really enjoyed is that Schaffner never goes for the easy joke she never goes for the smirk and as you say poor old Marie Kondo or perhaps quite possibly poor rich mm, I think she's very very wealthy very she would be so easy to mock but Schaffner says no let's not do that um and she makes a very good point. I mean, Kondo doesn't speak English. So the fact that her message has gone right around the world in translation tells you something about its potency. It, it just does. Mm. Uh, she also links it back to, this is where she's very good at finding genealogies for things. So she links it back to um, Shintoism uh, and also the concept of uh, wabi-sabi, the impermanence of all things, which starts to make a kind of, sense and I, I guess is a sort of Japanese version of non-attachment. Non uh, Schaffner also uh, very uh, admirably, I think for, for a university professor makes it quite clear at the beginning of her book that she has read all these books, she has done all these books, she is trying to be you know five pounds lighter, a better parent, uh, all those things that we we need to be, we want to be, and we read these books. So she she's absolutely clear that she finds something very cleansing about the condo uh, 
idea, uh, that sense in which there is something quite dramatic about what it does. By changing your environment, you do, in a sense, clean up your interior life so that it's no longer full of very odd socks and, um, you know, socks with holes in them. Well, I have, I mean, I have noticed when I'm very sort of worried about something or preoccupied with something that I generally something I can't control the outcome of a good tidy goes very well and I I also kind of think the flip side of it I am possibly unhealthily attached to watching those kind of hoarding programs that they have on tv and what is painful about them is always that the person who is doing the hoarding there's always a trauma there's always yeah. something horrible mm. that they're compensating or avoiding. And it seems on that basis that something like, you know, cleansing your sock drawer, which sounds so trivial, is a kind of mindfulness to use another often devalued word. But it does, it does bring you into attention in your in your own life, doesn't it? I think that's right. Uh, one thing so many of these philosophies have in common and, and again Schaffner very very good at making connections across culture and across time is that sense of making space uh, whether that's internal space or space in your sock drawer or a sort of philosophical pause where you can put distance between you and the immediate environment um, so she talks a lot about the CBT cognitive behavioral therapy which of course is, is um, prescribed under the National Health Service. Uh, now, some people will be very, very, psychoanalysts will be very, very sniffy about that, will say it doesn't get to the root of anything. But those who uh, are, are very keen on it, and the many people are, suggest that it just creates a space between the, the thing that's hogging all your attention, be it, you know, your, your, your problematic child or your holy socks, and your reaction. So it builds in a sort of five second pause. And that is incredibly helpful. And I think that's what Schaffner seems to find in all of these uh, very different philosophies. I mean, she's not suggesting that they can be collapsed into one master narrative or anything like that. But what they all seem to do is make a little breach, a little space in the way in which you consider the world. I wonder, does she say anything, and I'm, I'm assuming possibly not, about the kind of real sort of dilution, about the kind of endless, you know, internet hacks, the five ways to, you know, lose five pounds of belly fat or clean your fridge out or all that sort of thing? Because that's where I, I, I sometimes think, actually, despite the fact that these books seem to sell so, so well, are they at some point just going to all go into kind of five-minute podcasts or five-minute films on how to declutter I think that may well happen but I think to be fair her book is a kind of resounding answer to that so what she does is comes it the other way around she in a way starts with the five ways to clean your fridge or you know 10 ways to be a better better daughter and she makes them richer and more complicated by tracing them back so she's absolutely aware that that is the process. But what she seems to be saying in this book is, um, don't be put off by that. Don't 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 have that sneer that's so easy to uh, to, to to feel when you when you encounter those sort of things. Think about them, uh, untangle their richness and their history, and you will reach something much 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 deeper. And that's very positive in a way. I mean, obviously. I want to buy all the books that are under review in the TLS every week. But this is straight up to the top of my list. This just sounds fascinating. I think it's a brilliant example of, of what um, an academic historian or academic philosopher can do. Um, it's published by Yale, Yale University Press, you know, very, very kind of proper, rigorous publishing house it would have gone out to peer review you know it would have passed every single hurdle but it reads so elegantly and so smoothly and it connects so deeply with things that one's thinking this was a book where I absolutely was doing a lot of underlining and stamping on sticky notes all over the place and I think it's just a really nice example of of, of what can be done uh, when an academic who really has the information the knowledge and the kind of the capacity to think across time and space, what can be done uh, in the hands of a very skillful writer. And it's a lovely idea, the, the, the idea that what it 
all of it is trying to do is just make a bit of space, whether that's physical or emotional yeah. or intellectual. And, and, and it's, it's, um, that's very helpful to be able to see that as a thread running through all of it, I think. Absolutely. Just in time for Christmas. And note to self, not to just, you know, buy every gaudy bauble going. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Catherine, I have to say, you've, you've really, you've taken us really in depth into that piece. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'm just assuming you're going to go off now and pick up all your belongings and see whether they spark joy or not. Exactly so, yes. <laughs> Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Alex to Lucy. Still to come on the show, we look back at Edward Docks talking about Boris Johnson, remember him, and Parliament, which may have kicked something off, do you think, Alex? Goodness, I mean, from little podcasts, mighty acorns grow. I mean, Ed was so, his piece and talking about his piece was so brilliant that I, I guess we could say it was sort of part of a, a momentum. But we really looked back at this piece too, because it wasn't just about Boris Johnson or the Conservative Party. It was about the fitness of Parliament, wasn't it? So we kind mm. of feel it sort of come full circle. Those are still questions that we're very much discussing. And then we thought we'd include a little bit from Hay where we, well, frankly, we went on our holidays, didn't we? And we, I mean, we worked very, very hard, but we were so thrilled to meet Lise Dusesh and Sana Safi and the legendary documentarian Norma Percy. And we got them all together in a tent and it was just, it was brilliant. So we thought we'd include a little bit of that. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In recent weeks and months, Boris Johnson's government has lurched from one crisis to the next, from lobbying scandals to Russian donors, from lockdown parties to the heavy defeats of the local elections. But where did it all start? Are these missteps caused by poor judgment and blinkered political vanity, or are they indicative of a much more deeply rooted rot? The title of Hannah White's book, Held in Contempt, 
may give you a clue as to where she stands. Edward Docks has reviewed it and joins us now. Welcome, Edward. Hello. Now, I have to say, your review, uh, one of the angriest I've ever read, and all the better for it, didn't leave me in very much doubt as to where you stand. Is, is that fair? I think that's fair. I mean, I hasten to add, not at all angry with Hannah White's book, which was and is excellent, and uh, which I read with a sense of great relief that there was another sane person out there who documented what had happened in parliaments, well, really since 2016. Um, but the subject which she addresses in a different way, I think, to the way I address it, which is the subject of contempt. Um, sure, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty cross about that, and in, in particular, yeah, cross about it with relation to um, to Johnson and the current government. Mm. I mean, just tell us a little bit about the scope of her book. Uh, what's interesting, because you point out, is that she was once a clerk of the House of Commons. Now she's deputy director of the Institute for Government. So she really knows whereof she speaks. I think um, Hannah White is one of those wonderful, wonderful British people who um, began their lives or sorry, began their, their adult lives, um, deeply devoted to making things better um, in the way that lots of civil servants are, but in her case, in Parliament. Mm. And she later advised on committees and has vast parliamentary experience in the most close-up and day-to-day dealing with MPs, dealing with legislation, dealing with procedures kind of a way. Um, I think, I don't know exactly when she left for the Institute for Government, but I think it was in the last five years. And she moved from being inside the House and literally, you know, talking to MPs about how to get legislation passed or what works, what doesn't work and what's legal and what's not legal. She moved from that to a more wider strategic role where she now looks at, well, it's the Institute for Government, so looks at government and from a non-party political point of view, she was non-party political when she was in the in Parliament, of course, as well, tries to assess what might be done to make you know, the central engine of British life, i.e. the procedures of Parliament, work better. And so that's where she comes from. And her book really is a, as you might imagine, given that background, a, a wonderfully skillful and forensic look at various aspects of Parliament done from a vantage point of expertise and with lots of love. She, she obviously, as, as many civil servants do when you get to read their stuff or get to know them, she obviously loves Britain and loves, loves Parliament. So it's written from a place of, of great um, care, I think. But she, she essentially diagnoses what we might say is, well, she calls it in, a, in, her, in her title, Held in Contempt. And she looks at various aspects of political life um, and how that plays out in Parliament and goes through them and sort of illuminates for the reader what it is that's going wrong. And just to give you some examples, one would be the arcane procedures are so difficult to learn that many young MPs or new MPs have no idea how anything works. And it takes them a long time to do so. You arrive in Parliament perhaps with lots of excitement and vim and, you know, from either side, whatever your views, trying to get things done for your constituents. And you sort of hit this labyrinthine nightmare of how procedure works and get ground down by it or it takes too long. Second obvious point she makes is the building, the actual buildings and uh, fabric of the House of Commons and the House of Lords, Palace of Westminster, is really, really dilapidated. I used to work there briefly as a journalist myself, and I can tell you there's mice everywhere, you know, the, all the heating pipes leak. It's, it's, it's old and it's falling apart, and the disrepair is, is just such an obvious, obvious metaphor, really. And then the last thing, and I think the most serious, although all of those things are serious, is the way that successive governments, because of Brexit, have started to treat Parliament, starting off with Theresa May, who had to be reminded by the Supreme Court that she couldn't behave in the way she's trying to behave. And then we move on to the very, very, I can't leave a better word than bad, approach that Boris Johnson has had to Parliament, where he repeatedly sidelines Parliament, tried to prorogue Parliament, turned the people against Parliament by calling the Brexit bill a surrender bill. So 
essentially made the country complicit in discussing the illegitimacy of Parliament, and then goes on from there, you know, and now is, is stands accused of repeatedly lying to Parliament. And Hannah makes that case, and then I go on from there to talk to talk more generally and perhaps more on the emotional human side of what contempt means. The first thing that one thinks, of course, is those processes and procedures which Hannah White seems to say, and you to agree, are just, just render Parliament not fit for purpose in the modern world. Of course, they apply whatever party is in government, but it also seems that you're making the point that there has been an incredible manipulation of those weaknesses in the last few years that that essentially Theresa May and then Johnson after her have used to manipulate to their own ends. Is, is that right? That's right. That's right. I mean, one of the things that came home to me reading um, Hannah White's book is a lot of what's actually happening in Parliament is driven by those parliamentarians who have been there for quite a while and who've got somehow got a grip on the arcane procedures and um, the labyrinthine difficulties of how you pass secondary and primary legislation and how you amend a vote and so on and so on. And this is not always the case, but it's often the case. Instead of discussing the matter in hand, members are constantly introducing bills or amendments that the public just don't understand. So the public are thinking, should we leave the European Union or not? And the parliamentarians may be thinking on, about that, but their bills don't seem to reflect that. Although they do in terms of the narrow parliamentary procedures. Very few people followed, for example, probably the most important act or one of the most important acts of recent times, the Ben Act, and then following that onto the European acts in the autumn of 2019. So when we're looking at those things from the outside, we're not, as, as people, we're not understanding very clearly what's going on. And nor, Hannah White makes the point, are the younger MPs. Now, you add that to another point that she makes, which I think is very good, which is this, this problem of parliamentary exceptionalism, whereby MPs feel, and in some ways you can see why, that's their legitimacy, that's, their, that's the reason they're there. And they need not um, participate in the kind of human, human resources type life that someone in business would be. So, you know, if in business you had uh, someone said you'd assaulted them or whatever, there would be procedures, it would be quite clear, there'd be tribunals and so on and so on and so on. In Parliament, as we all know, there are, I think, over a dozen <laughs> live cases of that as we speak. And then there's all the stuff about Owen Patterson and lobbying and there's all kinds of areas where MPs behave as if they're exceptions to, to uh, established rules. And that reaches its apogee in the figure of Johnson. I don't think I'm saying anything out, out of line here, but who essentially does what he pleases and then finds a way to get away with it in front of Parliament, rather than, as Hannah White argues at the end of her book, setting an example where MPs become exemplars, they become the best of us. So they try their best to be great equal rights for fathers and for mothers and all, all the good things and all the future things that are coming anyway, rather than try to do that and have great human resources procedures and fairness and no bullying. And they, they do it the other way around. They do all the things they can get away with, or they seem to do all the things they can get away with to the public. So she's really making a case for the dereliction of parliament. And I then go on to make my point off the back of hers, which is I think that this dereliction reaches, it, it's kind of, yeah, I mean, nadir is a better word than apogee here, reaches its nadir in the figure of Johnson, who I think is, is himself personally full of contempt, not just for Parliament, but I also think for the media, I think for his own party, and I also think for the country. There's a balance, isn't there, between because from what you say and what seems evident, there's a lot of need for reform <laughs> of the arcane procedures, as you say, to put some HR in to <laughs> make it um, to, just to make it much more modern and straightforward and fit for purpose. And then um, from what we can see, Dominic Cummings, one of his, I think, stated aims, it was sort of beyond reform. Is it? Is it that that was kind of it seems to me that that was kind of destruction of what was there? or almost shoving it aside, and the danger of it is, you know, and, and, and maybe if you did get rid of it all, you would get rid of a lot of bad things, but then, but then there's nothing there. 
I'm saying that, 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 that there is reform needed. Dominic Cummings, let's say, comes along and says, OK, I'll reform it. But what actually he does is make it seem unimportant, which is exactly the opposite of what Hannah White wants. Does that make sense? Yes, I think Hannah White and Dominic Cummings are very good um, ends of, of spectrum. I mean, in my in my view, I think I, I think that um, I mean it's a different subject, but I think Cummings' apocalyptic worldview and the kind of, in my view, the emotional hysteria with which he, he he's a funny he's a funny writer because for all his claims of rationalism and altruism and clarity, he actually writes some of the most emotionally hysterical prose that you can read in, in modern Britain. I'm really glad you say that, Edward, because I read some of the things and I sometimes think, is it me? I cannot make head nor tail of them half the time. It's all at force 10. It's it's actually the opposite mm. of rational. It's actually, you know, I mean, there's another piece to write about that, but it's actually, in my view, the opposite of rational. It's a kind of, it's a rationalism um, that is used as a thin carapace to to cloak a, uh, in my view, a soul on fire. I mean, the guy is completely on fire. And I, I strongly disagree with everything that he has stood for, but I do think one thing he shares with Hannah White, and which I think we have to we have to grant him, is he is interested, however wrongly in my view, in the better polity of the UK which I think distinguishes both Hannah White and Dominic Cummings from, from Johnson, um, because Johnson is not interested in those things. Johnson mm. is essentially, in my view, I, I wrote a long piece a while ago, I think a year ago, um, saying that I think he was very close to an archetypal clown. And in this piece that I write in the TLS, I, 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 I indicate how I think he use, uses absurdism as a weapon. Um, and the theatre of the absurd, and how he collapses moral compass. It's a sophisticated attack on the polity and on Parliament and on Britain. But it is nonetheless a corrosive and diminishing attack, where I think, whereas I think both Hannah White, certainly Hannah White, but I think Cummings in his way, although misguided, and I, and I blame him for lying to the country about Brexit and so on, so on although misguided and wrong, they are at least interested in the discussion. We could have them on to this podcast and we would at least agree the aim the aim being how do we make Britain better even if we disagreed the means whereas I think the Prime Minister is a completely he's a very interesting character and a character I think who adorns national life he just shouldn't be Prime Minister he's the worst possible character for Prime Minister. This is the real crux of 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 the review and what I find so fascinating mm. you mentioned there you talk about the theatre of the absurd mm. and you also talk about the psychology and the psychiatry. You know, I didn't particularly expect to be reading about D.W. Winnicott in this review, but I was very glad I did. But you talk about his creation of a, of a false self. That's right. Uh, and, and it just, it's, it's, it's really fascinating when you begin to think, okay, there's somebody in charge who is operating in a kind of, I don't sort of shadow kind of way. I mean, what we think he's doing is not really what he's doing. Let me just show how the piece gets there. So, so what I what I was thinking when I was writing this, I was writing. So, if you like, Hannah White, because Hannah White is concerned with the with the parliamentary and the factual side of contempt, and I'm I'm interested in the moral psychology of contempt and what it what it teaches us about people. And one of the things that I, I was reading was a, a very good essay called Above and Beneath Contempt by a guy called Professor David Sussman. And he includes this fascinating quote from Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil. And I'll just give you the quote. He who despises himself still esteems himself as one who despises. And I write in the piece, I think that's a very striking quote because it captures something that the public feel instinctively about Johnson. And that's that there's a Johnson looking down on Johnson who can't believe that Johnson is getting away with Johnson, if you see what I mean. There's, as it were, two simultaneously present Johnsons. We might call one Boris and one, and one Johnson, if you like. I never dispute that he's, he's a clever guy. He's a very clever guy. But what's happening here, it seems to me, is that when, when you see Johnson in an interview or when, you're, when he's questioned or even when he's talking, there's the character of Boris. And then there's the slightly more sage, insightful and in, indeed interesting man. Um, his family call him Alexander Johnson. And these two people kind of coexist simultaneously. And that's where we get to, to Winnicott's idea of the false self and the authentic self. And in a nutshell, Winnicott's idea is that 
in childhood um, to counter coldness around us or disinterest in, around us, we develop a false self. And everyone does it to a certain extent. I certainly have a, a, a false self. Um, but in, in extreme circumstances, this false self becomes uh, monstrously distended and sophisticated uh, and, and an incredible performance, if you like. And that performance does really well because it's designed to seduce and beguile and garner attention and do all the things that were not there before. So if you like uh, under Winnicott's theory and, and, and people who are interested in, in reading uh, more Winnicott, I, I, love, I love his writing. He's very, I'm just trying to remember the name of the exact book. It's called Playing in Reality and it was written in 1971. Very germane when it comes to Johnson. Anyway, there we are. We've got, we've got this idea of a false self and a true self. Now, what happens, Winnicott argues, when, when this gap gets really, really big, as I, as I would say it is in the case of, say, Johnson, I think Rhys Mogg's another candidate. What happens in the gap between the false self and the authentic self is that all kinds of uncomfortable feelings germinate. Guilt, shame, horror, embarrassment, furtiveness, phoniness, and of course the fear of discovery. Because you're pretending, it's a, it's, a, it's a protracted masquerade, is one of Winnicott's phrases. So what I think happens in the case of Johnson is one way that he gets out of these feelings, and the reason people think he's shameless and people think he doesn't suffer any guilt, is that he uses the absurd. He has this view, which is common among very highly educated people, I think, that the world is absurd, that we've made up the laws, that we've made up morality, we've made up gods, we've made up everything that we do. And that's an absurd thing to have done. And Johnson thinks things are absurd. If you read his novel, not a novel I recommend, just as a, as a way of, of finding more out about him, he says it. He says his character, who is called Roger Barlow, of all characters' names, says all this. And so Johnson uses the absurd um, and the fact that he thinks everything's absurd and invites you to agree to collapse these feelings of um, discomfort, these feelings of guilt and shame. If people are all absurdly constructed, then he, didn't, he doesn't need to feel any anxiety of self-contempt. Now, of course, the problem with that is, again, all very interesting if you've got your own show on TV or if you're a brilliant novelist or if you're an entertainer of some sort. It's no good in a prime minister because absurdism corrodes the very fundamental things that we need to function as a polity. So that being parliament, that being truth, that being the duty of honesty, that being all the things that we need to make our country work. And, and actually, Johnson's wrong because, of, because people like me agree. Of course, we make the laws up. And of course, we invent philosophy and science and nation states and courtroom procedure and so on and so on. We know that. But the reason we invent them is to give our lives meaning. So I think that's why Johnson, in my personal view, this is my view, really, but I think that's why Johnson is so deleterious to the polity and you know to all the to, to the Irish people who, on both sides of that discussion who are suffering from his lack of you know, his, he basically treats borders as absurd. He treats countries as absurd. He treats religions as absurd. You know, and the Scottish fishermen who are out of business and all the Brexit stuff. So, and all the Conservatives, some friends of mine, very well-meaning, brilliant Conservative MPs, people like David Gork, who, who got booted out. I disagree with them politically, but I, I can see that he wants to try and make things better. So even they don't like Johnson because, because Johnson basically treats the Conservative Party as absurd as well. Thinking about the people he surrounds himself with, his, his cabinet, first and foremost, but his other political allies, um, are they all just still going along with this for their own reasons of self-advancement and perhaps the kind of survival of the Conservative Party? I mean, people may not analyse Johnson to quite the degree that you have done. I'm not sure his his cabinet, for example, is sitting around reading Winnicott and Nietzsche, but they must still have a sense of this. Why is it then that they tolerate it? Because he wins them elections, because he's a performer. Well, there we go. You, I mean, there's two, there's two answers. First is because he wins. So that just leave that there. That's why I think the letters have not gone in. Second answer, I think, um, I'm, I'm not alone in this, many, many better writers and thinkers than me have written it, that he surrounds himself by people who are not his intellectual mm. and uh, instinctive equals. Um, those kind of people, and I'm thinking now of people like David Gork or Nick Bowles or, you know, um, Oliver Letwin or famously smart conservatives cannot be anywhere near his government. Um, 
the people that are close to him and that surround him in the parl in parliament are people who are you know not got his intellectual ability and people who don't think and challenge him or would never think to challenge him in this way and I think he's hollowed out the Conservative Party. The Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, um, Julian Smith, was one such person, I think, uh, and was widely admired on this on this island. Mm. Uh, and of course, therefore, had to go. Yeah. So that, I mean, so that's what happens. The people, you know, people like uh, Priti Patel and Nadine Doris owe their careers and their positions to him quite clearly. And the minute he goes, they go, and they know that. I don't think that there are. You know, there are many people in the cabinet. In fact, I'm, I'm, I mean, Michael Gove is obviously highly intelligent, but Gove is a busted flush now, I think. Um, and he's not allowed near the media. So I think that most of the people around Johnson, um, I like Gito Harry. I sat next to him at dinner a couple of times, but he's there for the fun. He's not there to he's not there to tell Johnson what to do, really. Um, Steve Barclay owes his position to him. Uh, I don't think Steve Barclay's a particularly profound guy either. So. The, the people around him are not the great conservatives of our generation. He's deracinated the people around him and, um, and put sycophants and less able people in there. And I think it's I think the Conservative Party is in big trouble because I think that what the, the country is really, really sick of them now. And lots of people on the centre right, people who have maybe voted for Blair, might even have voted for Brown, but then went back to Cameron and Clegg. They've had enough. And I think the Liberal Democrats are going to do very well in the South, better than people think. And I think it's going to be, um, you know, the Conservatives will find themselves having to start again. I think the damage he's doing, when I say in the piece, the damage he's done to the UK is absolutely unbelievable. I mean, it's really, really, really deleterious to our standing in the world and to the polity of our country. I was just wanted to just say something about the theatrical side of it because in terms of the performance because as you say they they're all doing a performance because they're public figures and they're being a clown and being in the theater of the absurd everything is absurd but the clown is can be trying to create meaning within that they do also show you behind the scenes as it were but you can in that sense have uh, creative clowns rather than destructive clowns but from the way you're seeing it that's that's not even what he is is he no i mean i agree with that and i think that's a really good point and i think that you're right the theater of the absurd is partly about the illumination of the architecture of theatre and therefore the architecture of human society thinking and relationships. It's not that I think that Johnson isn't doing that. I think he is doing that all the time. If you watch him in an interview, he basically is saying, my God, these interviews are so ridiculous. Can you believe that a person thinks this is the way to get the truth? Are you watching this? This is ludicrous. He's asking me a silly question. And I'm going to give him a silly answer because what answer else can I give him? This is such a, an absurd way to run things. So he's transmitting that all the time. And I think that's why I say in, in another piece that he's an archetypal or instinctive or compulsive clown. It's not that I don't think that those things are worth doing. I just think that it's the worst possible characteristic to have as a prime minister. Because the, pri the prime minister has to be someone who, who upholds the polity and says, however we've arrived at these decisions, however we've arrived at this parliament, this way that we run things, we need to continue to believe in these things seriously, because this is how, as a nation, with a degree of communion and reciprocity, we live. It can't be someone who's saying the ideas of communion and reciprocity are absurd. Do you not realise life is about appetite? Look at me. I've got to go and sleep with someone else. I've got to eat more cake. You can't have someone like that in the centre of things or else everything falls apart. And I think we're seeing that. We're seeing that. I mean, everything he, he turns towards, he treats um, as an apex clown. And it's funny and it's interesting. It is funny. It's interesting. It's also very involving and voters fall for it. You're drawn into it. But it's also just not what you need in a leader. If I was in charge of things, he'd be the culture secretary or something. And he'd be brilliant at that. But I wouldn't make him foreign secretary. and I wouldn't make him prime minister. And I wouldn't lay him anywhere near anything serious. Culture is serious. Can I just say on the TLS podcast? <laughs> culture is serious. Yes. Sorry. Of course, as a novelist, I believe culture is serious. But I mean, I mean that culture is playful and thoughtful as well as earnest. Yes, it might play to his strengths a little, a little bit more. Yeah, I, I have to say, Edward, you, as you say, you're a novelist, and uh, I think you have your next subject. I, yes, I've been thinking about that. But then you think, do you really want to sit in the mental space of 
Johnson's clowning. I'm, I probably will, but not next. I'm, I'm in the middle of one at the moment, so I'm going to I'm going to get to the end of that. But I, you know, his teachers, everyone says he's very interesting, and I think he is very interesting. I just think he shouldn't be prime minister. Thank you so much for coming on the TLS podcast. We're we're very grateful. My great pleasure. talking about stories from Afghanistan um, to begin with because um, we're going to talk about this this book. Lise, you've written an impassioned introduction um, for a book which was published earlier this year called My Pen is the Wing of a Bird and it's a very special and very powerful collection of short fiction. Can you can you tell us about it? Yes. First of all, welcome to all of you. You have a lot of choice in where you want to go on this bright sunny morning here at the Hay and Why Festival and we're really we're really, really flattered and honoured that you chose to spend some time with us. And also really touched that you've decided to look at this book. And let me begin by saying this is a book that's going to tell you stories about Afghanistan that you may not have heard before. Stories that will bring moments and images and colours into your life that are part of your life. Making a cup of tea in the kitchen being with your family, cherishing your children. But in doing that, they will also bring you into times and places that you may recoil from because they are very dark, very grim, very troubling stories as well. But this is all about women being able to tell their own stories in their own languages, in this case, the two national languages of Afghanistan, Dari, and Pashtu, although there are other languages, like Uzbek, and being translated for all of us so that we too can enter into the lives of Afghan men and women in a way that the kind of broadcasting I do as a news correspondent, you cannot do. Afghanistan is a story, is a, is a country, you will know it perhaps, how many of you follow what's happening in Afghanistan? You can't, we, we, our podcast listeners want to see, we want to see a show of hands. How many of you follow what's happening in Afghanistan? That is a very yes. healthy show yes. of hands, yes. isn't it? Yes, a very, very healthy show of hands. But Afghanistan is not just a country which has sadly lurched from one war to the next, and Sana's documentary tells you about some of those wars. It's also a country of poets and writers and gardeners. And we it's a country of proverbs. We were saying earlier, Afghans have so many proverbs for everything that we sometimes accuse them of making up proverbs. But there is one which they say that Afghans believe God knows what's better for humans than humans themselves know. And there we were sitting at a table when we first met this morning. And I was saying one of the most wonderful things about literature and about journalism in our time is that people themselves can tell their own stories. They don't need people like me, a correspondent from far away to come and tell their stories. And just as I was saying that, that Afghan women can tell their own story, Sana Safi appeared. And I thought, yes, Allah Karim, God is kind. Why should I, Lise Doucette, as a Canadian BBC broadcaster, tell you about Afghan women when Sana Safi can do it? So I hand you this book, Sana Safi, and you can tell them. And essentially, it is, there we were having yes, a coffee and we the, said, there's Sana. I'm on our yes, podcast. And yes, you said yes, you would. Yes, it is an initiative called untold with Lucy Hanna as the editor and she took it upon herself to say these are stories these are fictional stories but they are drawn from the real lives of Afghan women and these women want to be celebrated as writers not as victims or as women in an oppressive society sadly a society with a, a lot of misogyny but hey there's a lot of misogyny in a lot of societies right Okay, people listening to this podcast won't see the expressions on the women's face in this audience. But let me tell you, there's a lot of agreement with this. Do you want to, do you want to say how, this, how these women writers were found? How yes. these stories Sana, were found? Do you want to hear? Sana's here. Yes. No, um, I just wanted to say that the, the, the book is great. And Lucy Hanna got in touch with me when she was looking for translators. And uh, I introduced them to a couple of my colleagues. And some of the stories are translated by them. Um, so it's a fantastic book. But I, I would like to say that Yes, Afghan women are able to tell their own stories, but they also need Liz Doucette and Lucy and everyone else. Because I think um, some of them would tell you themselves that our problems are so many that we need every little help we can get. And you need amplification, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. That's what's needed. Somebody to say, okay, listen here. 
Absolutely. And so what they want is not to be looked down upon, not to be treated as victims, as Lee said, but treated as partners where they're able to tell their own stories, contribute to a world that is richer, inclusive and respectful. That's all we have time for this week. We hope you've enjoyed as much as we have listening to Catherine Hughes, to Ed Docks, and to the team live at Hay with Lise Doucette, Sana Safi, Norma Percy, and Toby Lishtig. Thank you for listening to the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back live next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.